0: This morning's reading is Psalm 45, which you can find on page 569 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the King, My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favour. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As we stand, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, our Creator, our Sustainer, wonderfully in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that at this moment, as we gather around your Word, the Word that gives life, so by your Spirit you'd move and work among us, reminding us again and afresh of Jesus Christ, your Son and our great Saviour, and having seen a vision of him, our great King, our loving Lord, so we would be stirred up to serve you and live for your glory. And so may the words of my mouth, the meditations and thoughts of all our hearts, as your spirit works and moves, may they be pleasing in your sight. We ask this through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, greetings in Christ's name. Good morning. Lovely, uh, it's lovely, and indeed, what a joy to be here back at Hartford. In Hartford, we're truly glad to be here. Um, we were last back in the parish in 2019, um, July 2019. So it's actually three years, uh, almost three years, since we were back here, uh, and we're so thankful already. Even for the few moments, you're welcome here. Um, your ongoing support. Uh, and your prayers. It's a real, I, I consider it, we consider it a real privilege, um, a delight and an honor to be in partnership with you uh, as you serve Christ here and as we do the same um, in Nairobi, uh, back in East Africa. And late, later in the service, later in this service, you'll hear more about the ministry there. Um, but for now, I want, I want to express publicly our deepest thanks, our great gratitude for the many encouragements, so a few of you, I think, back in uh, 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 the, the autumn uh, on the Zoom prayer meeting, which Mike led. So thank you uh, for your support for us. Now to our sermon. And we'll be reflecting this morning briefly on Psalm 45. Psalm 45. You have a handout. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to refer to it much, but it's there to guide you. Um, so uh, give us a, a guide of where we're going, and you can look, up, look, at, look at it later. Um, Um, The theme or rough idea I want to consider is the wedding of a king. The wedding of a king. That's really what this psalm, Psalm 45, is about. And let me start with this as an intro. Um, Everybody, I think, I think it's fair to say everybody loves a good wedding. Yes? Okay? We all love a good wedding. Weddings are moments filled with delight and joy. I don't know, usually, when we were back in England, um, summers were a big season for weddings, so I don't know if you've been to a wedding this summer, or if there's a wedding coming up later this summer. When that is the case, generally, and the countdown is on, everyone is happy. There's joy uh, in the house and among us. Even in those times, dare I say it, when we're going through um, heavy stress, okay, just to know a wedding is coming has this sense of bringing joy uh, to us. And we get something of that in this psalm, Psalm 45, um, the joy associated with weddings. It begins actually from the off, from the title. Uh, look, look at it with me if you've got your Bible there. Psalm 45, page 569, for the director of music, a reminder really that the psalms essentially are songs, okay? but for the director of music, to the tune of lilies of the sons of Korah, a masculine, and here's a clue, a wedding song. In other translations, uh, I've done a bit of work on this on the ESV, it says a love song. Okay? Uh, the Psalms, if you've read them as a whole, have all kinds of things that they mention. Uh, things, in fact, which when we read them carefully, we might not naturally choose to talk and read and sing about. Things like war and enemies, the Psalm speaks of those. Things like grief... And suffering, the psalms speak of those. Um, so it has themes we might not naturally choose to think and dwell on. But here's one a psalm which has a theme we would love to talk about, right? Um, a theme of love. It's picked up in the title. It's built up in verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. That's basically the psalmist saying that he is, how can I put it? Uh, he's overwhelmed. That um, there's something in his heart that is ready to come out, to overflow. Um, and what, and that, that really is what it's like, isn't it, with love? Okay, we want it to just, we want it, to, it, it wants to come out. It doesn't want to stay in. Let's run, let's run for a very brief moment, a very um, brief thought experiment. Think about this. Think about relationships in general. Um, think about relationships in general. Um, I know it applies to usually those of us who are younger, maybe if we're in school we could talk about that as as a theme, but it applies to all of us in a sense. So think to yourself, when one of your good friends gets into a relationship, how long does it take until you know? And we laugh because we know, isn't it? When someone gets into a relationship, you will know very soon. Right? Uh, it doesn't take that long. It's one of those things where once someone gets into a relationship, they will find a way to bring that subject into every topic. You'll talk about the weather and say, oh, it was lovely with my so-and-so and we're enjoying the sun, and so on and so forth. Um, we get excited naturally by love, and for this psalmist, it's the same. My heart is stirred, is overwhelmed, is overflowing with A noble theme. He's overwhelmed thinking about this wedding and for the rest of the psalm he tells us what excites him. He will do it in two parts That's the structure if you have the handout. Uh, Verses one to the second half, the first half of verse nine is about the man, the groom, the king. Second half from 9b, second half of nine to the end is about the bride, uh, the woman. And we are not going. We don't have enough time. Um, as I've been preparing, it's, you, you, you could do a whole series of sermons on this psalm, especially given numerous connections to the New Testament. We're just going to pick on a couple of things on the man, the king, and then a couple on the lady. So first, let's consider the man, the groom, the king. The man at, the, at this wedding uh, is the king. Notice that in verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme, and that already alerts us, noble. As I recite, listen, my verses for the king. The man in focus in this psalm who is getting married is a king. And that begins to let us know why he is excited, why he's overflowing. Um, here in the UK, uh, whenever we have a royal wedding, excitement abounds, doesn't it? Um, the media, as you know, starts giving us updates weeks leading up to the wedding. Um, the supermarkets and the shops even try and get a piece of action. They have promotions linked to the wedding, okay, royal wedding barbecue, whatever that means. Um, on the day itself, if you noticed, especially now with the way social media is set up, we get updates, honestly, minute by minute sometimes, uh, as the ceremony continues. Okay? What the groom is wearing, what look he gave the bride as he was about to make his vows, how the bride looks, who are the guests of the wedding? Who are the guests not at the wedding or who didn't make it to the wedding? Okay? What outfits people are wearing and so on. Uh, well, that excitement, if I can put it like this, is not original to our time. Um, the joy linked to weddings did not begin with us, if you like. Whenever anyone gets married, there's excitement, yes. When a king is getting married, um, there's double, triple excitement. Um, a king getting married means well, there lots of reasons. One is everyone is excited because the king, the prince, has found someone worthy to marry. That's often a question in the background. Will this noble person find someone? And then, especially in the ancient world, now that a king is getting married, the kingdom is secure. There will be, there'll be uh, offspring and the rule can continue. So the psalmist is overflowing because there is love in the air. And not just any love, but the love of a king. That is who is getting married in the psalm. Well, what is this man, this king, like? Verse 2 tells us. You, listen to this, incredible words, really. You are the most excellent of men. That's how it begins. And I want to, I want to amend that slightly. Uh, you can see this if you look at other translations. And I think the word used excellent there kind of con- can convey this. Uh, ESV, especially, which I've been working with, has, you are, interesting, the most handsome of men. That's what it has. NIV has most excellent, uh, and actually even that word could include handsome, doesn't it? Excellent means, excels in every area. Okay? You are the most handsome of men. There's something beautiful uh, and attractive about this king. Uh, There's something appealing uh, about this man. And it's not just appealing... um, Most appealing. He is truly outstanding. Now, interestingly, you hear the word handsome, um, and we might begin to think physical appearance, physical beauty. The psalmist then surprises us by giving us a different angle, a different twist on what handsomeness, excellence looks like. Look at how he continues verse 2. You are the most excellent of men, Filling that out, what does that look like? And your lips have been anointed with grace. So, you're the most excellent or the most handsome. How does he fill that out? He mentions something bodily, lips, but it's not to tell us what they look like. Notice that. It's to tell us what they are characterized by, uh, what they're immersed in. And what is that? God's grace. Your lips have been anointed, we could say covered over, poured with, filled with grace. The king is handsome, yes. He is outstanding, yes. And that is expressed in lips which overflow with grace. With words that outpour with compassion and the kindness of God. And when you pause and consider that, I think that is where true kingship, true nobility is seen. In the words of the speech, the utterances of a king. A good king is one who speaks gracious words, like King Solomon will do in Proverbs, or when he's faced with difficult situations of a woman, two women who are competing over one baby. A good king is one who speaks wise words, who listens and responds with the true wisdom and the wonderful grace of God. A good king is filled with grace and truth, Like the greatest of kings, Jesus Christ is. And no wonder, having told us about his excellence, then about his lips filled with grace, no wonder verse 2 concludes by telling us, since God has blessed you forever. The result of this excellence and what he has is that God, this king has the favor, the blessing of God forever. On first reading of this psalm, we might think this is just an ordinary king. However, on careful reflection, it quickly becomes apparent that there's something um, outstanding, we might say, unique about who this song is about. His handsomeness, um, his excellency, we might say, is not focused on his physical looks alone or his impressive majesty or even his tremendous wealth. He's clearly wealthy when we see how he's dressed Um, as described in verses like verse 4, verse 3 and verse 4. He's clearly wealthy, but that's not where the focus is. It's found elsewhere. Uh, A few weeks ago, before, um, back in the church in Nairobi uh, that we serve in, uh, I asked the young people, having reflected on this psalm as I was preparing for this, I asked the young people, hey, I'm reading a psalm. I've got to preach on a psalm that speaks of handsomeness. um, as I said in the ESV, the other version. And I said to them, tell me, what in your mind, what does handsomeness mean? What does it look like? Um, three things they said. This was, is this was coming especially from the ladies. Um, they said, he's got to be, number one, clever. Uh, number two, tall. Number three, have lots of money. <laughs> okay, The three Bs, I think, is that, is that um, clever brains, um, tall body, nice body, and then uh, lots of bills. Can pay lots of bills. Okay, uh, very rich. Uh, now, none of that. There is a the focus here, is it? Right? It's it's his words. We tend to think of things that are external. Um, it's his word, things that we can see and touch, like money and what they look like. Here, it's his lips, which have been anointed with grace. The king abounds with gracious words. Good words. We might say life-giving, eternal life-giving words. Uh, and so because of that, God blesses him, favors him forever. Not just for a season, not just at the height of his power like with Solomon. Uh, no, no, this king is blessed forever. And ultimately, when we start getting descriptions like that, it becomes clear that this psalm is ultimately about another king, King Jesus. Um, the descriptions that are given here as we read carefully... The high praise, you know, God has blessed you forever. The most excellent of men. Uh, The honor given him, the honor given him by God nonetheless, that God has blessed him forever. This is another king. It's not any ordinary king. This is clearly about the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. A few verses down in verse 6, the king is described as having a throne, of which all kings do, they have a throne. But then he is addressed as God and that his throne is forever. This is another king. This is the king of kings. This is Jesus Christ, ultimately. Now, a mistake we might make at this point is to conceive of grace. I want to um, push this a little bit and think carefully what grace means. A mistake we might make at this point is to conceive of grace as being, quote-unquote, nice. Nice. Um, Of being someone who never speaks a firm, a challenging, a tough word. Of being someone who never does something painful or which will upset others. That's how we, especially in the Christian world, dare I say, we've tended to think of grace as something that will never, ever offend. Okay, The king, we are told, has lips anointed with grace. And for many, perhaps even some of us here, Grace is being as that person with a constant warm smile. Um, that person who is ever polite, who wouldn't hurt anybody. Right? Um, I wonder if you remember the um, what are they? The books, the children's series of books called the, the Mr. Men series. Remember those? Um, this king, when we hear the word grace, we might think this man, if we're using those series, is Mr. Nice. Okay? Always good. But that, to have such a view would be to... Um, to misrepresent what grace is, I think. And also to misrepresent this king. You're, you, two mistakes, misrepresenting grace, misrepresenting the king. And let's see how that comes through. In this psalm, grace clearly involves pain and sacrifice. It involves battle and rebuke. I wonder if you notice that in the psalm. Look at verse 3 with me. Just look at verse 3. Verse 3, God. Your sword upon your side. So unusual. We've been told about grace, we've been told about grace and grace anointing his lips. Next thing we hear about a weapon. Here's a sword on his side. Okay, here's a king who goes to his wedding with a weapon. And perhaps initially you might think, well, maybe it's decorative. Okay? In many parts, you know this, it happens in England, in many parts of the world, nobility, kings and queens come to their wedding, or formal functions, dress in military attire. We've seen it with our own princes. Um, and if you look at the, some of the footage, uh, uh, the princes or those around them would have swords on their side. Uh, or if you've, been to, um, if you've been to a military wedding, someone who's in the military, sometimes when they come out of the church, the, the, the men from his platoon will have uh, swords Kind of as they walk through. Um, and it's, it's decorative, it's flashy, it looks nice. But here's the here's twist to that. People who walk around with their weapons are showing they, they would be ready to use them if they needed to. They'd be ready to use them if they needed to. And in fact, with this king, not only does he carry the weapon, but he fights. Look at verse, we've done verse 3, he has a sword. Look at verse 5. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Here is a king earlier. He has a sword on his side. Here in verse 5, he's being exhorted to do something. To actually use his arrows and let them harm his enemies. And what is the result? There will be people who will fall under his feet. And that begins to give us a clue why this king, noble as he is, gracious as he is, will fight. He has people who are viciously opposed to him. People who are opposed to the most excellent of men, the most uh, noble, the most kind of men. The king who, verse 4, stands up for truth. We sang it in our, uh, one of the songs. Stands up for meekness. He defends a weak. And stands up for righteousness. And so here's a clue as to why the king fights. And is brave and has to do difficult things. This king is good. And one of his being good and gracious is that he stands up for what is good. For what is right. For what is beautiful. And for what is true. You see, a grace-filled king, a good leader, would not be doing his job if when he came across wickedness and evil, if when he encountered injustice and oppression, he simply said, uh, let's be nice to each other. Uh, let's forgive and forget. Okay? Let's, let's hold hands and make peace. That would not be a good king if in the face of horror like that, they just shrugged their soldiers. One must stand up and protect the weak and the vulnerable. There are times when we are called to be tough. This king, when faced with error, speaks truth. He pursues truth. When faced with arrogance, he fights back. He defends the meek. He wants to stand up for meekness. When faced with unrighteousness, he doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, ah, you know what, that's how the world, the 21st century world is like. No, he pursues it. He rides forth for it. Here is a king who fights in the face of evil, who is bold, and who will destroy what is wicked. Um, I don't know if you've read the, the series of books. Many many people have the C.S. Lewis series, the Narnia series. Um, the second book, famous book, probably the most famous, "The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe." I think captures this beautifully or powerfully when um, you might remember the scene. Um, it's four children, isn't it? But one has then left them, and now it's three left. Um, and as they're talking with the beaver, they discover that Aslan is not a man but a lion. Okay. And um, you remember, so they're like, oh goodness, it's a lion. And Susan then asks, oh, having realized this, I thought he was a man. And she says, is he quite safe? And the beaver, sort of taken aback, says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I I want to say that's how we should think about King Jesus, who this psalm is really ultimately about. Of course he isn't safe. He's a king, but he is good. Or, let me twist that slightly, of course he isn't, the way we think about it, nice, but he is kind. He's gracious. If you come, as we did in confession, if you come to him in humility, in repentance, acknowledging your sin, then he will beckon you in, he'll embrace you. He'll hold you, he'll cleanse you. That's what he is like. If you come in humility, he says, come, draw near. If, however, you remain in your sin, um, if you remain and say, I'm going to be firm, choosing to go my own way, it will not end. I have to say this, it will not end well with you. He has a sword on his side. He has arrows in his hand. And all the king's enemies will, in the end, be forced to bow the knee and painfully, it has to be said, they will be destroyed. May that be, not be our lot. May we be those who come in humility, like we did in confession, who are on the king's side. Like, there's one actually in this psalm, there's someone on his side, there's a bride. Right? And I want to finish then as we conclude by talking very briefly about the bride. Okay? We've seen from the first half of the psalm a little bit about the groom. There's more that could be said. I want to talk about the bride briefly as we begin to wrap this up verse 9 introduces the bride. Let's look at it for a moment. We're told, "Daughters of kings are among your honored women." Then the bride is introduced. "At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir." Now every bride, uh, I think, seeks to look radiant on their wedding day. And this bride is no different. She's dressed in the gold of Ophir. And if you know your scriptures, uh, gold that comes from this place, this town, this region, is meant to be the finest gold, um, the finest of finest. And so that's what she is dressed in. And not only is she dressed splendidly, radiantly, she is also, interestingly, like the almost paralleling the king, she is physically beautiful. Look at verse 11, okay? the theme of what they look like is picked up. Look at verse 11, describing the bride. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. And here we get an answer to that question some might have, especially in the ancient world. But even today, the king has found a suitable match. Okay? He, the king is enthralled by your beauty. Right? attracted, uh, desires your beauty. The king has found someone suitable. Now, if the groom in this psalm is Christ, then the bride, we, we need to go through the whole Bible and end at Revelation, the bride is the church. It is us, you and I, believe it or not. You might be feeling unworthy. You might be feeling like you've not made it in life. You might be feeling that I'm not someone attractive. In Christ, we become wonderful and beautiful People who Christ delights in. And you might think, we? Well, yes, because of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus died, not because we were lovely, but he died, and in trusting in him, we are made lovely. By his blood, he makes us Worthy. And so it's no wonder that as the psalm concludes, the bride in this psalm is given a rather strange exhortation. She's told to forget something. Okay, the king loves you. The king desires you. You're beautiful. I want you, O oh bride, to forget something. Look at what she's told to forget. Verse 10. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. What an odd exhortation. The bride is told, forget where you have come from. Forget your people, forget your father's house. Which, as a parent who has daughters, feels a bit odd. Um, it feels a bit of an unusual thing to ask a girl to forget where she has come from, to forget her family. Um, to forget the people she knew. It actually, if we're honest, on first reading, seems a bit harsh. Okay, particularly, as I say, if you have daughters, that when they get married, forget where you came from. Now, interestingly, in Kenya, where we serve again, a bit of background, a bit of cultural background, back in Kenya where we serve, it really struck me when, I went, when we moved back in 2017, you go to weddings and you hear this kind of talk a lot. Um, you go to weddings, it's never, it's never really mentioned to the man, I don't know why, but to the ladies, to forget where they've come from, to forget their past, that now they're forming a new family and their focus ought to be in this new home. You hear this kind of talk. But it, it, for us, if we're honest in the West, it jars slightly. Forget where you have come from. Now, I want to connect that exhortation, how to forget, to forget where you've come from, to we as a church, to you as a church, to you as a people of God, and how we're to respond to Christ. Remember that becoming a believer, becoming part of the bride, is a recognition that your sins have been washed by his blood. That you've been made worthy by his broken body, by his death on the cross. And if that is true, isn't it right, I think, for Christ to call us to put away our past? To turn from the very sins he has cleansed us from, because that's what we're being asked to as the bride. We're being told, forget where you came from. Uh, Forget the sins that uh, entangled you and messed you up. Leave them behind. Right? To put aside our past commitments and loyalties, and now look firmly to him, the most excellent of men. The song we sang, all the glory, honor belongs to you. It had the line, I love you, Lord Jesus. We desire him. That's what we're being called to. In committing to him as our Lord and Savior, we're saying, we want to really serve you as our Lord, as our king, the most excellent of men, that I'll put the past behind me. And I don't think, just to be clear, it means we should we shouldn't care for our families or show no interest in anything in the world, but what it does mean is that everything should be seen through our commitment to Christ. How is my spending time with the person you love, your family, helping you love Christ more? How is your pursuit of that skill deepening your commitment to Christ? How is your joining in that activity you like doing every weekend? Strengthening the bond you have with your king, your lord, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And so I finished by asking us to think about that. We're told in, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says we're to do everything from the simplest, whether we eat or drink and everything else to the glory of God. We could say to the glory of Christ, our lord. How, how is that manifest in your life at this moment? Are you living that day-to-day, or are you in fact refusing to forget the past, your father's house, where you came from? Um, Refusing to cut yourself up from your people? Are we so entrenched in the world that you're not doing everything to the glory of Christ, but instead, as happens a lot when we're kind of not really committed to Christ, we're trying to please the world. We're trying to receive the praise of the world. We're trying to fit in with the culture. Christ has saved us. That is what makes us beautiful. That is what makes you beautiful and worthy. The call now is to cultivate that beauty, to increase it, to add to it by forgetting the past and looking earnestly into the true man, the most excellent of men, Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Almighty God, we thank you so much for sending down to earth earth and to us the perfect man. You didn't just send uh, someone who could do a simple job. Uh, You didn't just send a mere servant. You sent the best, the king, this glorious one, Jesus Christ. And in his humility and in love for us, he chose to serve us even unto death. What a king. What a Lord, what a master. And as we are exhorted as the bride to put the past behind us, how we pray indeed, looking to him, we would cling tighter, closer, looking to him by his word. And so put the past, put our past sins, our past troubles, the things that have so entangled us, and clinging to him, be shaped and chained from one degree of glory to another. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. May we fix our eyes on this man, Jesus Christ, as we await that day when indeed we will see him face to face and then we'll be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.